Let's pray. Lord, may your word only be spoken this morning, and may your word only be heard. Amen. This last Monday, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, Angela Merkel, a child of East Germany, and now German Chancellor, commented on those events. Where there was once only a dark wall, a door suddenly opened, and we all walked through it onto the streets, into the churches, across the borders. Our family knows borders. When we moved here in 1994, playing border was a common game for our daughters. Arlie and I frequently couldn't get from the main floor living area of our house to the second floor bedrooms without crossing a border that was barricaded by Allison and Jennifer. We needed to show a passport and get a visa that allowed us up the stairs. Crossing between spaces, moving to a new space, is sacred. It requires ritual. Borders are thin places. They are places where the sacred enters. They are places of crisis. And they are often world-shattering as they reshape our lives in new ways. The time between is uncertain. It is not clear which side of the border governs behavior in the time between. One of our favorite border crossings from our time in Lesotho is at a place called Sani Pass. If you've seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, you will know the place. It's the spot where the main character throws the Coke bottle off the edge of the world. And that sentence only makes sense if you know the movie. There's a road over that, over that cliff. The Lesotho border post is at the top and the South African is at the bottom, separated by the steepest four miles you will ever drive. So was it, the, was it apartheid or the pride of the Basutu that governed that space in between? What would have happened if we had lost our passports? Would we be stuck there forever? The texts for today are border texts, pointing to sacred places in between. The last century before the birth of Christ, Herod the Great shows up, a king both Jewish and beholden to the Romans for his power. He desperately needs legitimacy. A master of public architecture, he does what any king worth his salt would do. He builds a temple. For Herod, the temple was meant to demonstrate to the subjects who hated him that he was there through Yahweh's action. By the time of Jesus, the rebuilding was largely complete. It was, by all accounts, a magnificent structure. But for all that it represented Yahweh's presence in the city, it also represented political power. It was, after all, Herod's temple, and he was not a nice man. It had come to re represent a certain kind of collaboration with the empire. But in the run-up to the war with Rome in the second half of the first century, it also represented, for many, violent resistance to Rome. This was a border time a time of transition. The religion of Yahweh was in transition. Rome was increasing in power. Religious ferment was in the air. It was hard to know what would happen next. So we have Mark, reporting the disciples in awe of the building, in awe of what Herod had wrought, and perhaps thinking about the temple as the basis for resistance to Rome. For the disciples, the temple meant power, Herod's power, Yahweh's power, the power of the resistance, and in recent memory, the power of the Maccabean resistance to the Greek Empire. Jesus' response was simple. 
it ain't going to stand. Everything you know is changing. Worlds will be shattered. Political power, religious power, the power of the resistance, none of these are reflective of the reign of Yahweh. Wars, rumors, earthquakes, birth pangs are coming. World-shattering events are in process. It is the end of the temple, the end of the world as we know it. A new world is coming. We aren't sure what it is, but it's around the corner. And as we watch what we thought was normal unraveling, we know that we are seeing the birth pangs. Jesus is pointing to a new order, a new reign that he was inaugurating. Temple theology has ended. The temple no longer confirms and supports the powers that be. There is a new way, a law written on our hearts, a kingdom where Yahweh is seen not as guarantor of the political powers. There is a new community that stitches together former enemies into a body of which Christ is the head. This community becomes a light to the nations. The cross is another border story. It is scandalous, hard to comprehend, offensive. Those of us who are steeped in the peacemaking, nonviolence, and non-resistance that sit at the center of Anabaptist theology struggle to come to terms with the violence of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Try really reading Joshua and Judges as a pacifist without bleeping out the bloody parts. The commands of Yahweh to utterly destroy the enemies of Israel can be hard to stomach. Divine commands to genocide don't sit well with us. Many of us escape those stories for the comfort of the New Testament. We sigh with relief when we read Jesus' call to turn the other cheek. We celebrate Paul in Ephesians 2, describing the end of the dividing wall of hostility. But we can only breathe that sigh, enter that celebration, by sliding over the appalling violence of the cross in the gospel stories. The sheer bloodiness of the cross is scandal. It raises uncomfortable questions about Yahweh demanding death in order to save us. I will acknowledge up front that I too find the language of blood and death and violence challenging. I grew up on blood of Jesus language. One doesn't have to look hard to find it in the hymns. I won't sing them for you because that would be a different kind of violence. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here flows a sacred crimson flood to wash away thy stains. Those aren't in our hymnal, but ours is only a little less, a little bit more understated. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Or as we already sang this morning, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? It may be that we have heard these songs, listened to these images so often that we no longer cringe. Descriptions of washing ourselves with blood would just be weird if they weren't so appalling. Underlying these songs is the idea that it is death and blood that satisfy God's need to condemn us, that take away the punishment that we deserve to bear. Implicit in these hymns is that Jesus bore the full weight of our sins and therefore had to take the full weight of God's vengeful punishment that was aimed at us. I grew up believing that God cannot forgive us without blood being shed, and I wonder about the limitation that that places on Yahweh's sovereignty.
That's another sermon. I will also acknowledge that I came to a place of revolting at the theological language that I grew up with, perhaps because I found it, well, revolting. I grew up believing, oh, sorry, yet the language of violence and blood is there, and we must find some way to take account of it. So the question, can redemption be redeemed? Our text from Hebrews offers some help. It is, after all, something of a border text itself. The author carefully takes apart old understandings of sacrifice and reshapes them for the new world. For the reign of Yahweh is revealed in Jesus. It's important to understand something about Torah, the law, if the Hebrews text is to make sense. Torah did not provide Yahweh's people a means to salvation through sacrifice and obedience to the law. Obedience to Torah did not bring salvation. Rather, obedience to Torah was a grateful response to Yahweh's prior act of salvation. The prophets repeatedly call for care of widows and orphans and strangers. Why? Not because that saves, but because you were once strangers in Egypt and Yahweh has already saved you. Doing justice is a grateful response to Yahweh's prior act of doing justice. We are to live shalom because Yahweh has first given us shalom. Living Torah was difficult. Even if it is a grateful response to Yahweh's saving act, gratitude fades, willingness to live in justice and shalom fails, caring for widows and orphans and strangers gets tiresome. So something needs to be done to remove the sin and enable Yahweh's people to again live Torah. Torah provides for a wide range of sacrifices, including sin offerings, offerings meant to remove guilt. But note also that the primary ritual for the removal of sin is on the Day of Atonement. A goat is brought, hands are laid on it to transfer the sins of the people, and the goat is driven into the wilderness. While no blood is shed, we may need to wonder how long the goat survived in the wilderness. But this is not a forgiveness ritual. It's a purification ritual, as were the various sin offerings. Or to put it in formal theological terms, Sacrifice was about sanctification, not not justification. The pattern in the Old Testament is clear. Yahweh's love and mercy come before anything else. Yahweh called and redeemed Israel simply because Yahweh loved Israel. Everything starts from there. I have called thee, thou art mine, is the beginning place. There's another pattern. In Exodus 34, Yahweh is self-described. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The context for this statement is the worshiping of the golden calf at Sinai, the remaking of the stone tablets, and the making of the covenant. In this context, one that might have seemed right for retribution, Yahweh proclaims Yahweh's nature as merciful, compassionate, faithful, and forgiving. The writer to the Hebrews reflects the patterns from the Old Testament and then changes them, crosses a border. When Torah is is not practiced, the priest offers sacrifices to cleanse, to purify. But the next day, it has to be all done again. But this priest, 
This one is different. His sacrifice, his death, purified us for good. He sits at the right hand of Yahweh and waits. He waits for his enemies, death and sin, to be finally defeated. How will they be defeated? Through the fact that we have been purified. In this purification, this being made clean is final. We who are being made holy, who are part of Yahweh's new people, have been made perfect. This reality has consequences. So the writer to the Hebrews continues to take the world apart and put it together in new ways. Note first that the author again describes world-shattering realities. We are at a border. And we know this because the barriers are down. The curtain that separated us from the very presence of Yahweh has become the doorway through which we enter into his presence. We must not forget that before the temple with its barrier separating the people from the presence of Yahweh was the tabernacle also with its barrier. And before the tabernacle? Before the tabernacle, we have Abraham chatting with God in front of his tent. We have Moses on the mountain seeing Yahweh's backside and gaining a face that shone so brightly that people could not bear to look. We have Yahweh's presence in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. We have Elijah and the sound of sheer silence on the mountain of Yahweh. And now? Now we all have this privilege of passing through the barrier into the presence of Yahweh through the way opened by the body and the blood. Not only that, Torah, the guide to living lives of grateful obedience, is now written on our hearts. Torah, as Jeremiah promised, is written into the core of our being. Now we know how to live. But even more, again quoting Jeremiah, the author reminds us that our sins and lawless acts are remembered no more. We know, it, we know how to live, and we are purified. So the author offers a little advice to us to help us in paying attention to the Torah written in our hearts. Four things we should do. Draw near to Yahweh. Yes, Torah resides in our heart, but if we are to live Torah, we need to be connected. And here I bump up against it. I'm something over 50, and I still haven't got that one figured out. Much of my life, for many reasons lost in the depth of time, has been spent maintaining distance. Distance from my friends, from those I love, from Yahweh. But if I am to live as Yahweh intended, I need to separate myself from the old ways and draw near. I need to cross the border from my old self to something new. Hold on to the confession of hope. Hope can come hard. Those of you who have received email from my business account may recall my tagline, a quote from St. Augustine. Hope has two lovely sisters, anger and courage. Anger so that what must not be will not be. Courage so that what must be shall be. Hope is not easy. Hope calls us to new ways of living. It's neither static nor merely an attitude. Hope for me is hard work. I am in many ways a cynic at heart. I much prefer the sneer, the superiority of noting the hypocrisy of others, the shrug that says, what else can one expect? Hope calls me, to engage, calls me to engage the world in new ways, ways that require change, that require me to cross another border. Provoke each other to love and good deeds, and at the end, encourage one another. We need each other. Odds are that I am not going to live Torah without your encouragement. 
and you won't without mine. But that means I'm going to have to encourage you, which means in turn that we're going to have to maintain our connection. Don't neglect gathering together as some tend to. It seems that regular attendance was already a problem for the first century church, though I wonder whether the risks of the time may have contributed to that. This life we are called to can't happen without active engagement with each other. For those like me who often see ourselves as self-sufficient, after all, isn't it enough if I have my books? We need to recognize our interdependence, another border this time, into community. You'll note that I still haven't really addressed the body and the blood. But that language is still there. The writer to the Hebrews seems to be telling us that in all that we are exhorted to, there is something important about the cross, the blood, and the body. On the one hand, I find myself repelled by language of bodies broken and blood shed. On the other, it captures a significant reality. We know that making peace in any of our relationships is costly. Any reconciliation requires sacrifice. In serious conflict, can feel that we are sacrificing our bodies, we are shedding blood, we are losing something central to ourselves to make something new. Any of us who have embarked on a serious process of personal change know that it can be both exhilarating and wrenchingly painful. It can feel as if a part of us is dying. Entering into change and reconciliation is a border crossing that requires death, the death of what is old so that the new can be born. The four exhortations the writer to the Hebrews concluded with are that kind of change, that kind of border crossing, wrenchingly, painfully, bloodily hard work. But remember, a way has been opened to enter the holy place through the body and blood. Ours is not the only body and blood involved in this crossing. The one we follow also put his life on the line so that we can enter into hope. This has become increasingly important to me in recent months. I grew up with twin assertions about the faith. On the one hand, the blood of Jesus was necessary for God to forgive. God needed in some way to be appeased in order for my sins to be forgiven. This was an angry, nasty God who would condemn me to hell for not having the right theology. Or he would give me a pass if I believed the right things, primarily believing that he was so angry about my sin that he required the death of Jesus in order to look the other way. On the other side, my tradition told me that I could and should have a relationship with this God, that this God loved me, that it was possible for this God to become my friend despite his latent desire to condemn me for all eternity. I still haven't gotten over the ironies of this theology. It is little wonder that in many circles, Trinitarian theology drifts into tritheism, the idea that in Christianity we actually have three gods, as we struggle to hold in our heads the idea that this God I have just described and the Jesus we find in the Gospels are somehow the same person. Two things have helped in my healing. One is realizing that my tradition is just wrong about God. This picture of God has little, if anything, to do with the reality of Yahweh that I find in the biblical text. Exodus 34 again. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Second, I've started to look at the cross in new ways, not in terms of a death required for my forgiveness, rather a death that follows inevitably from the life that Jesus led a death that is a precursor to our own. Resurrection to new life, as I've already said, 
requires that we pass through death. More importantly, Miroslav Wolf, among other theologians, has helped me to see that death is the ve- that death is the very act of Yahweh's acceptance itself, not as a prerequisite for God to accept me. For it is here, arms outstretched on the cross, where Yahweh embraces us. It is the very concreteness of this act of embrace that is beginning to enable me to break out of all of that theological nonsense I grew up with. It is concrete visual images of that embrace used in prayers, reminders, that have started to give me access to this as lived reality, that have enabled me to be conscious of, aware of, Yahweh's faithfulness and compassion. And paradoxically, these images have enabled me to hear that those songs of, hear what those songs of the blood are saying, to find in the cross the concreteness of Yahweh's love and faithfulness. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? or thorns compose so rich a crown. Angela Merkel again, where once there was only a dark wall, a door suddenly opened, and we all walked through it onto the streets, into the churches, across the borders. So we're back at the border. Which side reigns in this space between, this space where we live our entire lives? Some days it's hard to tell, but this I do know. We do have this great high priest standing at the door welcoming us. The border has been crossed. The barrier is torn down. The way is open. Our hearts are sprinkled to remove our guilty conscience. Our bodies are washed with pure water. We have been changed. There is hope. 